wanted to do that this week. Um, so we're going to be looking at uh, a portion of Acts. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Um, or there may be one under your seat somewhere. Um, or you could use your phone if you have one on there. That's perfectly fine. But we're going to look at Acts, start in Acts chapter 1, um, which is not pe- the story of Pentecost. But then we're going to jump to Acts chapter 2, which is. So we're going to start um, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. We'll read through verse 8. And then we're going to jump to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And pick up there. And um, maybe before I do that, I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning um, for your word. <laughs> it is alive and powerful. It is not dead and cold <laughs> and so um, and, and powerless. So we, we, we would just pray that you would awaken us to that truth today by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to understand a little bit better what happened at Pentecost, why it was so amazing, and maybe how that's supposed to impact us today. And um, that we can leave here um, not just with an understanding in our head, but a realization in our hearts of who you are that will influence and affect everything that we do. So Lord, this time is yours and we are yours. We pray that you'd be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. This is written by Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, He says this, he says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, meaning Jesus, Jesus has been, at this point, he's come back from the dead, he's hanging out here on earth, and um, before he went back to heaven, we have this account. And it says, On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jumping to chapter 2, verse 1, Luke writes this. He says, when the day, in between here, Jesus descends to heaven, he goes to heaven, they see him go to heaven, they're left waiting, they're doing this waiting thing. Um, And then we pick up in chapter 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit had enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in, or Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of our God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. 
Acts 1.8 is something of a missional, prophetic missional call to the church of all times. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells them to wait, or just before 1.8, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until he comes, and, 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 and once he comes, once the Holy Spirit comes, they're going to receive power from him, and they're going to go out and be his witnesses in that locality right there in Jerusalem, and they're going to do it in Judea and Samaria, which is just like the area surrounding there. And they're even going to go out and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's like this ripple effect of a, a stone being dropped in a pond, and it just radiates out from there. He says to, to wait. And it's like a, this prophetic missional call, not just to them, to those early believers, but to us today as well. It wasn't meant to be limited to them. The Holy Spirit is actually given to all people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus for the glory of God and for the good of all mankind. We miss the point of this eruption of eternal power through the church if we limit it to a time and a place 2,000 years ago. The event of Pentecost was momentary in and of itself, but the powerful truth of the event in the indwelling Holy Spirit is meant for all disciples throughout all times. The apostles, Paul, Timothy, Titus, and countless other biblical figures exemplified this as they took the gospel to places like Ephesus, which was hostile to Jesus and those who carried it there. The Holy Spirit called them and equipped them to carry the truth of Jesus to all people, even those who were opposed to him. And it didn't matter if they were at Pentecost, the first Pentecost, or not. They went and did it. And just as he called them, just as he called the Paul and Timothy and Titus, those who, who weren't at that first a Pentecost event, he calls us today as well. The call to missional engagement overseas exists for us, but also the call to missions in our own backyards. It's to full-time vocational missions or being a voice for Christ through the normal rhythms of everyday life. It's a calling for each of us. It's a calling for you. And it's a calling for me. I, um, one scholar said this. He said that the fact that the Great Commission is the last instruction of the risen, now ascended, and imminently returning Lord gives it great weight. It's the last thing Jesus told his disciples before he went back to heaven. He said to go and make disciples of all nations. And he's, he is not men, mentioning an optional ministry, the scholar says, or optional activity for individuals with cross-cultural interests and churches with surplus funds. The Great Commission is the primary task the Lord left his church. The church must always be a missionary church. The Christian must always be a world Christian. That's why we went out this morning. That's why we went prayer walking. It's because that, that is like chief among the responsibilities that we have in Christ, is to go and share the gospel. It is to be on mission. And it's to be that individually in our homes and in our own personal communities. But we're supposed to be that corporately as well by going out together into our community, by sending missionaries like Elise out into foreign lands 
It is our call, and it doesn't matter, as this scholar said, it doesn't matter how much money we have or how many people we have. Sometimes I think we look around and we're like, there aren't many people here, or there isn't much money here. And that's maybe comparatively true when you judge us against some other congregations, but that doesn't matter. What matters is us being faithful and obedient to the call that God has given every Christian. He didn't say you don't have to do it if you only have this much money, or you only have to do it if you have this many people. He said everybody has to do it. The word actually for witness in Acts 1.8 is martus, which when literally translated is the word martyr. It developed from its original form into our common Christian usage over time, but originally it was used in the sense of being a legal, historical, or spectator of anything. So it's having seen something. Like you have witnesses in jury trials today, right? They come up and they testify to what they observed in a crime. And that's how it was originally used, and, and it's developed in, our, in, our, uh, Christ, in the Christian church into what we now know of a martyr, because Christians went out and they testified, they witnessed to who Jesus was, who they know him to be, what they've seen him to be. And as a result, the world didn't like that, and they hurt them, or they killed them. And so, martyr today is synonymous with one who goes out and testifies about Jesus and is emotionally or physically um, offended as a result of that. Originally, it just meant witness. Jesus is calling us, maybe he's calling you to be a martyr as we use it today. I don't know. If it is, we are going to get behind you and we are going to carry you and support you and cheer you on. There was, there's these accounts of martyrs throughout Christian history who would like go to the stake or, or stoning, and there would be a couple of them at one time, and they would cheer each other on. They wouldn't say, no, just give in. It doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't want you to die for his name. That's not his plan. No, they would get behind the person and say, you can do this. You don't have to give up. We, we know that what we're testifying to is true. Don't worry about dying. We're going to die here, but we're going to live there. And they, they didn't tell them to, to give in. They tell them to keep going. And we can do that for each other. When things get tough, when life gets tough, that's part of why we have one another. It's not to, to pull each other back into a safer place, but to push each other on toward greater faithfulness to Jesus. But not all of you are going to be called to that. Perhaps most of us aren't going to be called to that, but we are all called to be our martus, a martyr in the original sense, so a witness, to give a testimony about Jesus wherever we find ourselves. And Acts, because of that, Acts 8 is a, a strategic command. We're commanded to go to all people in all places and share about Jesus. We have to obey it. It's, it's not optional. In fact, I think when we start to make it optional, that's when our church suffers the most. Church will decline and eventually die if we aren't obedient to what Jesus has called us to do. But if we are obedient, regardless of our size, regardless of the amount of money we have, regardless of other resources, we will thrive. We may not grow to a mega church, and that's not the point, but we will thrive. Because we are being obedient. The Holy Spirit will care for us. 
Also inherent to this command that, that Jesus gives us to go to, to the world is this command to be perpetually ready. We must be continually ready to share the gospel with everyone who asks us about our hope in Jesus. Sharing the gospel doesn't happen only when we have a program or a planned event, but opportunities often arise when we aren't ready for them. I think that that maybe they more often happen when we're not ready for them than when we are planning for them to happen. And, And because of that, we always have to be ready. And this is kind of the case in Acts chapter 2, right? Like, in Acts chapter 2, at at Pentecost, you know, Jesus had told them to wait, but he didn't tell them exactly when or how or what was going to happen. They were just just on the ready. Whenever this was going to happen, they knew it was going to happen, they were on the ready. And in Acts chapter 2, Jesus tells the early church to wait for the Holy Spirit, and they're waiting, and, but they don't know... (laughs) I think sometimes they, like us, maybe even today, we don't know what the Holy Spirit is. We don't know how he acts. Um, and, and because of that, we don't, we don't have a good relationship with him. And we're not open to him. Um, sometimes it's kind of the Holy Spirit. You hear the Holy Spirit and you get scared. Like we think of a spirit that's going like, to possess us and control us and make us do things we don't want to do. Um, and... And because we don't have much understanding, we don't engage the Holy Spirit, and that is to our detriment. So Jesus gives us a little bit of explanation of what the Holy Spirit is, and other passages in the Scripture do as well. But in John chapter 14, he, he describes the Holy Spirit a little bit, and this is how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. And he says, how are we going to do that? Well, you're going to keep my commands because I am going to ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So how how does Jesus say that the Spirit acts in our lives? Well, John lists a few things there. He says that the Spirit is with us. He says that the Spirit is in us. That, that the Spirit is, is not just with us for, for a short period or temporal period of time, but He's with us forever. He, he, the Spirit also helps us. The Spirit reveals uh, God to us in ways that the world can't understand. And, and, and we see and recognize Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 then goes on uh, to state a little later in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is also a seal marking us as God's children, born not of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit and water. And, and the Holy Spirit is, is God. Just as Jesus is God and the Father is God, so too the Holy Spirit is God. He's formless, but he's full of substance. He is all-powerful, and he assists us in communicating to our God when we don't know what to ask for. 
In Romans, Paul says that the Spirit actually prays for us with groanings. And he also equips us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that he gives us gifts to use for the good of the body and the glory of God. So I grew up in a tradition um, that recognized the Spirit as a person, but we didn't really open ourselves to his power. We, we, we said that he exists, but we never really got to know him or surrendered ourselves to him and let him work in us to change us and to equip us and to help us to really know God. Others of us maybe have been part of traditions that have recognized his power but didn't respect his person. So maybe we recognize like the Spirit gives us things and does things in us, but we don't recognize him as God and respect him as such. That he's not just there to serve us, but we're there to serve him. This morning, I'm not going to say that I have the Holy Spirit figured out. I do not have the Holy Spirit figured out. Or that people in the tradition of my youth have it figured out or have it all wrong. Or that people in other traditions who maybe are more reliant on the Spirit and manifestations of the Spirit for their own personal good are wrong or have it all figured out. The truth of the matter is, all of us are wrong about God to a certain extent. Like, we just can't wrap our minds completely around him. Some of us get parts of him right and other parts of him wrong. The goal for us as Christians is to get more right as we get to open ourselves to him and let him teach us about himself, the truth. And then once we learn about it, to employ it in our lives so that we're not operating in our own power, but we're operating in his power. I think one of the traps of Satan is to divide us in the church. For churches to go around and say, well, that church is all wrong because of this, 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 and this. And that church is all wrong because this, this, and this, this. But we've got it right. And um, I'd love to tell you that we have everything right as a church. As like our denomination, the Southern Baptist Church, or as us living legacy. We don't. We don't have it all figured out. Mickey has most of it figured out, right? Like, so he has the big books to prove it. So, uh, but like, but we don't. And so one of the first steps in this journey to getting to know the Holy Spirit is admitting that. Humbling ourselves and admitting that we don't have everything figured out and that we need God's help to get there. And when we do that, maybe one thing that God wants more than anything else is for you to know him. God desperately wants for you to know him. He's not hiding from you, making it hard for you to find him. He actually wants to reveal himself if you really, really want to get to know him. So, I um, I want us to get to know him as a church. I want us to get to know him as individuals. Um, because it's only through him that we are equipped to do what we are called to do. So Jesus um, Jesus tells the early church to wait in Acts like 1.6 or 1.7. I'm not even going to go back and look for it, but in there he says to wait. He's resurrected. He comes to them. He's hanging out with them. He even has a few meals with them. And then he says, just wait here until I send the Holy Spirit to you. 
Don't go and do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. And I, I, the reason for that, I, I'm convinced, is because if they try to do it on our own, just like if we try to do it on our own, we are going to be utter failures. Complete failures. Nothing is going to happen. Because we are powerless to do these great works that God prepared in advance for us to do as people. So he says to wait. Just wait. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what I want you to do when that happens, and you have power that goes way beyond you that can do anything, is I want you to go out and do what you can't do. I want you to go out and be my witnesses to everyone in every place. See, that's the, that's the point of the coming of the Holy Spirit. That happened first at Pentecost, but happens for every believer still today. That Spirit is not your personal genie that will grant you whatever wish you have for your life. The Spirit came to equip us to serve God and to carry out the call that He has placed on the church, you being part of it, chiefly to make Christ known to all people everywhere. The first Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down, the Scripture tells us like tongues like fire. What did that even look like? I mean, I don't even know. That must have been amazing. I, mean, I just don't even know that we can imagine how that appeared. But it, it happened. It, it came down and, and, and rests on them. And I think that was probably the purpose of it. It was so amazing, so like out of the norm, right? That nobody could explain it other than it being God. And they came down and, and rest on them, and, and God makes this, this point. He draws attention to the event that Jesus said to wait for. It was like, I'm going to like, put an exclamation on it. I'm going to bold it. I'm going to underline it. I, I, I'm, I'm going to make it so clear that you can't even miss it. This is what I told you to wait for. If he didn't, otherwise we may be waiting here like 2,000 years later and questioning, was that the Holy Spirit? Was that the Pentecost that he told Is that what he told us to do? But he didn't do that. He made it really clear. And he highlights the primary, this is, I love this. He highlights the primary purpose of, of the coming of the Spirit in the immediate event that happens. The tongues come down like fire and... I don't know where they are. They may have been in a room and then left that room and went to where lots of people were, like in the temple, or they may have already been in the temple and lots of people are around them. And they start speaking, but not in just the language they, they know, but they speak in all these languages for, of people from all over the world. And, and, and it's a crazy event. because, And we know this because the people watching them speaking in their languages says, aren't these just like Galileans? The whole idea there was like they were like these untrained, unschooled, like nobody fishermen who had no way of speaking all these languages. There's just no way it could happen. They were the nobodies. They were the B team. They, they were just like, they were the people who didn't graduate high school. They, they, they were, the people that were least expected to be able to do something were the people who did it. And you think about that, and it seems crazy at first, but then if you think about it a little more, it's like, that's completely God's M.O., right? That's a, completely how he works all throughout history. 
He's taken people who shouldn't do something and then they do it. And the reason he does it that way is so that he gets all the credit. Rahab the prostitute. Who would have thought that God would use a prostitute? And this isn't like this isn't like children's Sunday school. Like we're making it like wrote like she wasn't that. She was a terrible person. She did terrible things. She was a literal prostitute. Parents, you're gonna have a fun time when you go home today. <laughs> like so. But God used her to deliver Jericho to his people. Totally unlikely, yet used. He took this little, the youngest of the sons, uh, this little like um, shepherd boy, who was a nothing. He was nothing. He, his father didn't even expect him to amount to anything, but he raised God raised this little shepherd boy up that his father didn't even believe in to be the greatest king in Israel's history. King David. The guy who slayed, he went out with a few stones and a slingshot and slew a giant. And, and, and by the way, this again is not just like a nice little children's fairy tale story. This actually happened. He was a giant. He slew him with a stone and then he cut his head off with the guy's sword. This little nobody shepherd boy that no one believed in. He took someone who shouldn't be used and used him. There was this little girl who wasn't married, didn't have a family name or an education, who was engaged to a guy who was a carpenter, like a nobody carpenter. And then she gets pregnant before she gets married. Total like social outcast, particularly then. And God uses the two of them to bring his own son, the Savior of the world, into this world. Nobodies who shouldn't have been used to do something great so that God gets all the glory. And at that first Pentecost, he took these Galileans, these nobodies who probably didn't graduate the equivalent of our high school or even maybe middle school, who who could only speak one language and had never traveled the world, And he allowed them to speak in languages that they could never have hoped to spoke on their own. And when they did it, they didn't get credit. As we read on in chapter 2, God gets the credit. That's just what God does. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Put yourself in the shoes. Pretend you're the person that Paul is talking to here in the church in Corinth. Think of what you were when you became a Christian. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have nothing to brag about, brothers and sisters. Anything that we are is because of Jesus, not because of us. 
This is the irony of the Gospel. Those who appear to be nothing are something, but not because they did anything of their own. Rather, it's because God has done everything in them. And the reason He does this is so that He is glorified in the unexpected magnitude of their accomplishment. That's the primary message of Pentecost. It's not about how cool it was that the believers were able to speak in other languages. I mean, that was cool. It was amazing. But it was about the fact that these unlikely characters did something impossible. And as we read on in chapter 2, Peter corrects the crowd because at the end of, of, of near the at the end of the account we read, um, the crowd thinks that that these believers are drunk, which doesn't really make any sense to me. Like, I'm not sure how alcohol would help you to speak in languages that you have never learned, right? But they just attribute it to. But they're trying to like throw like darkness onto the light to cover it up. And I had a, a a guy who taught one time, and he was teaching, and he said he was in Africa. This is a Bible teacher. He said he was in Africa one time, and he was working with a missionary there. And the, it was a Muslim area of Africa, strong Muslim area. And they had a few people become Christians, and um, it was really cool. The spirit was moving, and then one of their people died. One of the Christians died, and he had been dead for three days. And this Muslim guy was using that to say somehow that God wasn't their God wasn't real, that his was, and he was speaking in the town center with a megaphone uh, and putting the Christians down and trying to talk people into becoming um, Muslim. And um, the pastor that my, this guy that, I, that was teaching me was, was working with said, that's it. And he said, you two and us two, um, this guy that was teaching me, we're each going to grab a corner of this guy's bed. And they picked up like the cot that he was on. He said, follow me. And they carried it out into the town square and sat it down beside this this Muslim imam who was preaching. And the crowd just kind of was like, what is going on here? And he got silent, and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And that man that had been dead for three days came back to life and got up and walked. And the Muslim guy, his imam, didn't know what to do, right? He's just like still silent. So the Christian pastor just takes the megaphone away from him and begins to preach the gospel. They're saying they're drunk because just like that Muslim imam was doing, they wanted to throw darkness, they wanted to throw cold water on the movement of the Spirit. But God wasn't going to let that happen. And so Peter's like, no, 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 no. And he gets up and he gets everybody silent and he does something tantamount to what that pastor did with that guy. He begins to preach the gospel. And he goes on and he, and he says, look, this Jesus of Nazareth who you killed has come back to life. And it's because of him that we are able to do what we are doing today. And anyone who will believe in him and submit themselves to him will not die, but will have eternal life. And he preached the gospel to them. And you know what happened? With this tiny group of people, this tiny group of believers who waited and waited and then finally received the Holy Spirit and then did what Jesus told them to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, through them, thousands of people became Christians that day. Is that going to happen for every church? Probably not. But just because the same exact thing doesn't happen, 
doesn't mean the Spirit isn't going to move in the same way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God wants dead people who are living right over there to be brought back to life in Jesus. But if we just keep what we have to ourselves, if we disobey Jesus' call, His command to not just those first believers, but to us today to go out and make disciples, to make Him known, if we just stay here in our comfortable building and keep it to ourselves, that's not going to happen. But because we serve the same God and have the same Spirit that they had that day, if we, like them, will trust Jesus and operate in His Spirit and go out there, wherever there is. It might be here. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be at your workplace. It may be in your home. It may be in Venice, Florida. It might be at a camp. Wherever it is, if we go to our there and we do what He has told us to do in His power, something similar is going to happen. It might not be 3,000 people. It might be one in your entire lifetime. But something is going to happen because God wants people to know Him just like He wants you to know Him. And He's just as powerful now as He's ever been. Lloyd Ogilvie, um, who was who's a former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, um, not a kind of crazy spiritual guy by any stretch of the imagination, said this, and I think it's quite powerful. We have been instructed in the things Jesus did, but know too little of what He continues to do today as an indwelling and empowering power. We know about Him up here, He's saying, but too often Christians today don't know about what He can do through us because we never allow Him to do it. We, like the first believers, have to obey God. We have to wait on Him we can't do things on our own. But when the Spirit comes, we can't quench Him. We can't force Him into a corner. We can't try to, to keep Him from doing what He wants to do. If we allow Him to do what He wants to do through us, we won't need a VBS to have impact for the kingdom in our community. The Holy Spirit will do it all by Himself. And, and we won't need programs at our church. To, to let people know about Jesus. He, he's actually going to do it through us all by Himself. And, and we won't need mercy ministries to engage the darkness because the Holy Spirit through us will do it all by Himself. The question before us today is do we, like the first believers, really believe that He can do it? Do you really believe that the Holy Spirit is alive? Do you really believe that He is powerful enough not just to make people 2,000 years ago speak in other languages, but He's just as powerful today to change people's hearts. And through a simple prayer walk, simple act of kindness, move through you to change people's lives today. If we do, I think... I think we're going to see greater things done just by waiting on Him and following Him and letting Him work through us 
kind of simply through the normal rhythms of life than we'd ever see done through any program. And that is going to be awesome. I believe it. I mean, in the, the, in the pit of my spirit, God has awoken me to this like reality. And I'm praying that he awakens you to it as well and gets us all on the same page so that we can wait on him, so that we can be filled by him just as those believers of that first Pentecost were, and so that we can fulfill the calling to be his witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth so that we can see his kingdom grow bit by bit, minute by minute, and get to just follow him in it and be a part of it. So I guess the challenge today is let's not settle, but let's surrender so that God can do what only he can do. Will you pray with me? Father, um, we thank you this morning for um, being patient with us and in loving us and sometimes correcting us. Because I, I know that I I think I'm in good company, but I, I get off track. I start to want to do my own thing or or think through and plan my own program rather than just listening to you and letting you give us the plan and you give us the ability. And so, Lord, I, I pray in Jesus' name that, that we could all get together on that that we would surrender ourselves to you, that we would wait on you and your empowering. And then when you move, as, as, we, are, as we are living for you in, this, in, in the rhythms of life and even corporately here, as you begin to move, we will just ride that wave and um, allow you to use us um, for your glory in, in, in remarkable ways, in undeniable ways, so that those who are lost in our communities will be found. So that those that you are calling will, will come to know you. and So that you will get the glory that you deserve. So Lord, we love you. We are yours. And we pray um, that you would use us mightily for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.